Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. You join me in a conversation with Mark Suchi, a Toronto native, graduate of Harvard Medical School, and previous MIT researcher. Dr. Suchi's work focused on device invention, intellectual property, business in medicine, medical content production, and education. Dr. Suchi has been named to the Forbes magazine Top 30 Under 30 in Science and Healthcare list, won the MIT Data Prize, won the Massachusetts Medical Society Information Technology Award, named one of the top young entrepreneurs by CEO World, and awarded Governor General's Medal of Canada. I began by asking Mark to talk us through his career to date. Sure, I'm happy to talk about kind of my path and how I ended up where I am. That may be a good place to start. You know, the stuff that got me interested in what I'm doing today. So at Harvard Medical School, when I was training, they put a big emphasis on you know being a well-rounded clinician. That might mean taking a year to do research, taking a year to do a business degree, something like that. And in fact, about 60% of my class took an extra year in med school to get an MBA or join a lab or, or do a master's, public health or whatnot. I actually took that time and went into a lab at MIT and just really didn't have much of a plan, just wanted to be with some some different people, expose myself to some different stuff. And I was working on stem cells at the time. And myself and my professor, eventually I came up with a device and we patented it and licensed it out to a pharmaceutical company. And you know our device was centered around treating Crohn's and ulcerative colitis using stem cells. Anyway, so it was about really taking myself out of the clinical portion of medicine, out of the, you know, the comfort zone at Harvard and doing something different at MIT that I got exposed to different things. And that's first when I learned about patents and when I learned about companies and when I learned about innovating from bench eventually to bedside. That particular device is in clinical trials now. Talk a little bit about that. What was that about and why that particular device and why that particular problem? So I joined a lab at MIT, Bob Langer's lab and Jeff Karp's lab, his co-mentored. And this particular device was, I was continuing in the lab on projects they were working on and essentially growing organoids, which are these mini intestines in dishes. So they're kind of like small versions of bowel. And, And what we had done... So my part of the project was to figure out a new way to grow them in a biocompatible way. So I used small intestine submucosa and plated them on that. Previously, they were plated in biotoxic medium, unfortunately, that we couldn't transplant into patients. So we grew them on small intestine submucosa, which exists in our intestines, and used a biocompatible 3D matrix to grow and incubate the organoids and eventually combine this with a bunch of other methods for growing these stem cells with a couple other PhDs and patented it. And, and that's licensed out to industry now. So they're working on clinical trials for that. What was it about that that interested you? Was it the technology or was it the fact that you would be helping patients in real life? What, what, was, the, what was the driver behind it? So honestly, I didn't know much about stem cells at all. So again, I, it's completely new to me. It was just being different, something different, something you can apply your problem-solving skills to that was a little bit uh, different from just being in the clinic. I didn't have a personal connection to Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, no family members, anything like that. I just 
I liked playing around with, you know, the organize and the gels and it was more of a creative exercise for me. So where did you go from there? How did you develop your career after that? Yeah. So also during that year off, I paradoxically thought I was going to not be as good at clinical medicine as I was as a third year med student, which of course, as you know, is not very good at all. But, you know, not really knowing that I started my first company, which is Two Minute Medicine, um, which essentially what we do is kind of like the Associated Press. We have a team of physicians that curate, summarize the medical literature and uh, rate the evidence of it. So good quality, systematic review, RCTs, these are evidence level one, you know, and it goes down the line as you get into more observational and retrospective studies. But I started that and uh, that's grown, you know, to a global syndicate. We license out to pharma, to other publishing companies, or we license out our reports. But that was really spurred upon the fact that I had a personal need to keep up with the literature myself and I couldn't find reliable sources. You know, a lot of the medical news is written by, you know, journalists that might have some experience in health but aren't actually treating patients or on the front lines and, you know, can't really rate the evidence, can't appraise it like a physician could and can't really curate and find what's likely to be high impact in the future. So I started that company during that year at MIT as well. And I still run it. Uh, So I'm the CEO of that. That's based in Boston. And kind of a side project was a second company during that year with a friend where we worked on a couple wearable devices and started a company that's now in California. And I'm not involved in that company anymore, but just another creative outlet where we we were able to make things, patent things and, and, and try and develop them. So you're very unlike many of our previous uh, speakers in this program when you've, you've been a serial entrepreneur and it's taken you from the lab through to publishing, through to uh, developing devices, etc. What is the underlying thread, would you say, to all of that? Is it just your curiosity, your, your intelligence and your, your interest, or is it something else that's driving you? That's a great question. I think I'll tell you the first instance of when I discovered that, you know, we do in fact have the ability to change behavior of people around us. And that's a powerful thing. When I created Two Minute Medicine, I was able to see how many people were visiting the website initially and eventually what they were doing on the website and how it changed practice. And we studied it. And that feeling of being able to put something out into the world, whether it's in medicine or or whatever your passion is, and to have it change something that's a very, for me, gratifying feeling. And that's something I really you put a lot of emphasis on. And it's really fun. And it's different. You know, I, I do get bored a little bit easy. So if I was to do 100% clinical work, you know, there are certain types of problems you work on in the clinic, but there are different problems you work on in a company or um, developing a device or brainstorming that just fill different passions that I think myself and a lot of people I'm doing similar things. Talk a little bit about your clinical practice, because I know you're a practicing clinician. How does that feed into the kind of thing that you get involved in? Yeah, another great question. And one that I don't think I've quite found the answer to yet, but I'm a radiology fellow at Mass General Hospital. And my clinical practice is essentially you know, reading MRI scans, reading CT scans, everything a, a radiologist does. And the way I was able to kind of marry my passions was to create an incubator 
at Mass General and Harvard, where what we do is help other clinicians who have ideas that I had, you know, the position I was in six years ago in a lab, but not actually knowing how to take that idea from your head and putting it on paper. I mean, all these clinicians, a lot of them are trained in clinical medicine, as makes sense, but not a lot of them are trained in digital health or patents or brainstorming or 3D printing. And these are the things that we want to help them with. So I was able to create, get buy-in and get some funding to create the Mesh Incubator, which I am the director of now. And uh, what we do is we have a, an actual prototyping lab in the radiology reading room. So we're the first ones to do that. And what we do is say a physician has an issue in an interventional radiology procedure or in a surgery where they're like, it would be great if we had a tool that can do such and such. They can literally walk down the hall to the incubator and we can brainstorm and prototype and 3D print in some cases such a tool and then patent it and go through the licensing process and and work with industry on that. Um, But it's all about helping other clinicians. And I get a lot of, you know, self-gratification from that, as I'm sure a lot of teachers do from helping seeing others go through that process and and have their ideas come to fruition as well. And in the Mesh Incubator, what we're now doing is actually offering a core innovation curriculum to the residents. So they come out of their residency training knowing how to 3D print, knowing how to prototype a device, knowing the basics of intellectual property, knowing the basics of corporate structures, you know, LLCs, angel investment, getting grants, getting funding. Um, So we're actually training all our residents in that now. Medical school must have done something in your career to make you, to give you the discipline that you have to be as creative as you are. What do you think that was? I think in medical school, and this is why I chose to come to Harvard, was because they were very open. And a lot of times... It was just about getting the go-ahead to do something else. It was just as simple as your mentor or your society leader is what we call them at Harvard saying, yes, you can do that. Or yes, I'll approve that project. Yes, I'll approve you going to MIT with no plan for a year. These are things that seem small, but they're so important. And when I, I created the Mesh Incubator, again, it was something new, something different. And it was all about my program director at Mass General saying, yes, you know, that's, it's different. You know, I'm not experienced. I'm not an expert in that, but let's try it. And I think just being in that environment and I'm not the first one to experience this, but just seeing that culture of you have an idea will support you is just massive. And so I give a lot of the credit to just being there. It sounds like the secret to it was people there recognizing talent, recognizing that somebody was going to do something great if they were just given the go-ahead, regardless of where you thought they would end up. What is the secret source of Harvard? What is the secret to them creating this amount of entrepreneurial zeal? I'm not sure if there's, I'm not sure if I know the answer to that. Um, I tend to see that the really good leaders that the people who have been in a position of leadership for a long time are more concerned about improving the institution and hiring people that may be experts, even in the field they're in, hiring A-plus players, as opposed to trying to secure their own 
career and create their own moat. So they're more worried about the good of the institution. And I think that that mindset is huge. And you see all the leaders I can think of that, that I look up to, whether it's in a residency program or, or the med school itself or the undergrad university, have that kind of nurturing, mentoring, let's, go, you know, let's put the institution first, you know, sort of thing. And I think that's at least part of it. I'm not sure what the rest of it is. I'm sure it's a, it's a, some sort of a secret, but it's a, it's a good place to be. Now let's translate back into clinical practice, because ultimately what you want is not just people who are entrepreneurial, but people who are going to behave that way in their own work. Now, as a clinician, how do you think that your colleagues who, who qualified with you from Harvard, how do you think they bring that zeal into clinical practice? How do they put their patients before anything else? In other words, you know, we're here to serve. I think that's a great point because and that, that really hits on the crux of why we do anything in terms of research or innovation. And that's because it starts and ends with the patient. And when we create the incubator or, or when we go in a research lab, it's always, and if you look at design thinking, it's kind of a similar type of mantra. It's you start empathizing with the patient, what the problem is. You go from there, validate a need, then ideate, brainstorm, prototype. But that whole time when you ideate and when you prototype, you're constantly going back to the patient and getting feedback, whether it's a device, whether it's a digital health product, whether it's a clinical trial and getting feedback from the patient. So it's patient-directed care. And there's a I at least put a large emphasis on our programs on not just creating solutions for the sake of creating solutions and trying to figure out a patient need after and trying to fit it in, but really being efficient in drilling down what's important to the patient. So we do a lot of surveys, we do a lot of talking to patients. And I think the really, you know, the really good clinicians who distinguish themselves are always, always, it's always about the patient. And that, that's something we try and emphasize. So in other words, any innovations that we create are there to serve patients, to improve the patient experience. Can you give me an example of something that you were involved in or something that you know about which did exactly that? Yes, I mean, I can tell you about a number of innovations that we're doing uh, in the incubator and also ones I know of. So, so some of the stuff we're doing in the incubator is if you've ever had, so for patients, feeding tubes, nasogastric tubes, these are tubes, as you know, that go in through the nose or, or mouth and end up in the stomach somewhere. Um, they're uncomfortable. They're not pleasant whatsoever. And a lot of times what happens is you put in a tube and you're not sure exactly where it is. So you got to get an x-ray to see if it's in the stomach. If you by accident put it in the trachea, if you by accident put it in, is stuck in the bronchus or coiled in the nose or something like that. These are all very uncomfortable situations. They have a high potential for morbidity and mortality. So one of the things we've done at the incubator and we patented is actually a device, a bedside device that attaches to the proximal end of an NG tube or a feeding tube and actually tells you while you're putting it in where it is. And it does that based on pressure signatures, humidity signatures of the different compartments. So obviously the, the mainstem bronchus is going to have 
something around atmospheric pressure that fluctuates with a you know period amplitude um, versus the irregular fluctuations in pressure of the esophagus and the stomach. And we use that with reasonable certainty to guide where you're putting the tube and to also eliminate the need for expensive x-rays. So that's something that we saw patients, you know, as a problem for patients, it was a problem for providers. So we, we brainstormed it and ideated and, and actually made a solution to it. I know of plenty of labs. So some, for example, at MIT um, are using stem cells and molecules, small molecules that encourage stem cell growth to actually repair hearing in elderly individuals. So that's a, that's a large you know, focus of several labs in the Boston area. So again, that's, that's clearly a, a huge issue. It's, it's one that bothers patients and it's one that's being worked on. I'll just say one more. A friend at, at Harvard actually finished his degree and basically immediately or before that started a company where they're essentially giving patients a balloon to swallow, goes in their stomach, swallows something that swells up and takes up space and is essentially like a, a non-invasive gastric bypass yeah. to combat obesity. And you may have heard of that as well. It's, I know it's over in, overseas and coming to North America soon. Um, but it's all solutions that really are patient-centered. Well, if I can offer you a, a problem, I was listening to some students present their MD thesis yesterday, and one of the students presented quite an interesting problem. When you have a colonoscopy, you have to have bowel prep. In other words, you have to clean out the bowel before the surgeon can put in an endoscope and have a look inside to see where, where, if you've got a problem with your bowel. And the, the data suggests that none of the current uh, bowel prep preparations are actually efficient at cleaning out the bowel. And this is a major problem because it costs, you have the colonoscopy and then you have to have a repeat colonoscopy because the bowel wasn't clean at the time that it was being examined. And apparently, and I would have thought this was a, a barn door problem, apparently there is no currently good mechanism for ensuring a clean bowel. All the thesis, all the thesis was about is, oh, you've got to educate patients to drink the four liters of whatever it is that you've got to drink to clean out the bowel, etc., etc. And the best solution that they came up with was an SMS to tell you to do it uh, the morning before your surgery. There must be a technological solution that would fix that problem in a way that would doesn't in, in involve the patient becoming uncomfortable in the process of cleaning out their bowel. We do um, virtual colonoscopies at Mass General where you swallow a pill and a CT colonography, sorry, where you swallow a pill and it images essentially insufflated bowel. You know, with problems like that, a great problem, a great need. And text messaging may very well increase compliance. Um, I know it's been done in other, other ways, but I would really, my question would be, what is actually the barrier? Is it patients not taking it? Is it patients not taking it? Why? Because they don't understand, because they can't afford it. Because So there's so many different things. And I, I would really focus on drilling down the need first. You know, who knows, maybe a technological solution is to have them swallow a pill the day before and get that data before they come into the hospital. Yeah. You know, a, a kind of a good good point you, you just came up with. Interesting. Yeah, it's something I'll have to think about a little more. Apparently costs a fortune in repeat colonoscopies and, you know, an inconvenience to everybody concerned. And of course, every colonoscopy has a risk attached to it. So you're doubling the risk every time somebody has to have a, another colonoscopy with similar risk, etc., no, it's, it's actually a really good need. We should talk about that one offline. We often say, in taking the most intelligent 
students, the most able students, to do medicine. We do this because it's good for clinical practice. Well, what you're demonstrating is that it isn't just that we reproduce compassionate, caring doctors, but we also produce people who are able to solve problems. And we often despair about medicine and say, well, you know, if only we had more money, if only we had more uh, doctors in different places, etc. The answer really seems to be, if only we had better ways of doing what we already do, just as we've discussed this morning. So it's been a great honor speaking with you. And thank you very much for taking the time. Of course. Yeah. Wonderful questions. And, you know, I'd love to continue the conversation. This is this is an awesome, you know, initiative, just getting these ideas out there. So happy to contribute. Thank you very much. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at www journalofhealthdesign.com